Hello and welcome to Material Matters with Grant Gibson. This is the show where I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Currently I find myself in the Wimbledon studio of the legendary Formula One designer John Barnard. In an extraordinary career which saw him work for the likes of McLaren and Ferrari, John dreamt up a dazzling array of innovations. In 1979, for instance, he designed the first ground effect car for IndyCar racing at Chaparral, while at Ferrari in 1987, he created the revolutionary semi-automatic gearbox with the paddle shift on the steering wheel. However, he's arguably best known for coming up with the first car to possess a carbon fibre chassis while he was at McLaren in 1980. The material ensured that the team's cars were lighter, stronger and safer. Oh, and they won a lot too, picking up two constructors' titles in 1984 and 85, and three drivers' titles from 1984 to 1986. His work effectively transformed the sport. If motor racing is an orchestra of materials, then John is the ultimate conductor. More recently, John has used the material to create furniture with designer Terence Woodgate for Establishing Sons. Meanwhile, his biography, The Perfect Car, written by Nick Skeens, was published in 2018. John, thank you very, very much for agreeing to do this. It's very kind. My pleasure. Can we kick off with the book? Certainly. Uh, because it's a, it's a hugely weighty tome, yes. 600 pages or so. Yes. Um, how did it come about? Why, why now? Well, strangely enough, it came about because the writer, Nick Skeens, um, was writing a book for someone else about uh, design in Britain. Um, looking at all aspects of design from uh, clothing to furniture to whatever. And he got into the furniture side and, and spoke to my colleague on that side, Terence Woodgate. Um, and Terence said, oh, have you spoken to John Barnard? And he said, no. And, you know, Terence said, well, you know, you know, he was used to do all the Formula One stuff. And Nick didn't know anything about Formula One. So Nick said, oh, you know, I must give him a call. And then it went from there. And I spoke to Nick and Nick said, oh, you know, has anybody done a, a book? And I said, no, I, you know, I was approached a couple of times, but I felt whilst I was in the business, uh, it was probably politically not a good thing to do, apart from spending a lot of time, which I didn't have. So uh, I said to Nick, okay, you know, let, let's think about it. And we started talking about it as an autobiography, me telling Nick everything I could remember. And then I said to Nick, I said, well, you know, Nick, I said that the problem is I want people to believe it. I want people to know that what's in the book is accurate. And therefore, it's got to be a biography. So you are going to have to go out there on your own talk to people that work for me, talk to people that know me, talk to the teams, learn about Formula One. And that's what he did. And I mean, it took him a long time. I mean, I can't remember when we started the project. It was something like 2009, something like right. that. So, right. you know, it's taken a few years for Nick to get all his thoughts, and not just his thoughts, but I think his, his take on me, you know, down in the book. Well, so. I was going to ask you about that. I mean, it is, it is an excellent read, by the way. Um, uh, and it is very honest. I mean, you see, you know, the, yeah. the, the good, the bad, mm. the beautiful, the less beautiful. And mm. this was obviously very important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's, that's, that's the point. You know, it's, you read these bio autobiographies and, I mean, you know, it's people just saying everything that's good, really. And I thought, you know, I know, I mean, I, I've, I admit 
to having uh, a bit of a reputation as being quite uh, quite tough, quite a hard taskmaster. But, um, you know, and I can't deny that. I mean, that's the way it is. I mean, I got this, it was Tyler Alexander, I think, back in my days, uh, McLaren um, early on, um, I think he came up with the nickname Prince of Darkness. Because, <laughs> Which is a chapter. To be, yeah, <laughs> because because I tended to, my, my, my natural, let's say, modus operandi is to look for the problems. You know, if I, if my feeling is I can't just walk around saying, oh, that's really good, well done, you know, nice job, brilliant. Yeah, you have to do that sometimes. But if you want to be better, then you've got to look for the problems. What's wrong with it you know and and so I, that's what i ended up doing and you know i used to get a reputation for basically if i went out in the workshop which i did a lot i was often in the workshop wandering about looking for stuff and you know they said well you won't you know if, you, if you've made a mistake somewhere you won't get, get away with it basically no you seem to have this eye, I will for, see it. eye for problems <laughs> yeah, to come exactly, through in the book. Yeah. <laughs> so so that was it and of course you know that uh, and then there's the whole business of delegation and delegation is a very difficult thing to get right. Um, and, and so I suppose my big thing was the design and technical side. To me, I got a lot more pleasure out of that side than actually going racing. I got pleasure when we won, obviously, um, and winning championships and so on. That's what you're there for. Um, but at the end of the day, it was the technical side that mm. really got you know, into me. And, uh, and, and so walking around the drawing office, talking to the designers that were working for me, wherever I might be, um, I, that, that fascinated me because, um, I would give them a project, you know, I give them a part to do or something. And, um, and I talk it through with them initially and then kind of let them go a little bit on their own and then I'd come back and see how they were getting on. And if 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 they de deviated down some different route to the one I thought they should be going down, that's okay. But they have to answer my questions, you know, with a with an, an answer that I can believe. So it's no good going off in another direction. I say, well, okay, but you've done this now. What are you going to do if this happens, if that happens? How are you going to make that? You know, and I would ask them all these questions. And if they couldn't answer those questions in a way that convinced me that that was a possibility going off in this other direction, I would say, well, I'm sorry, you know, you're going to have to go and do it mm. the way I want mm. because I've already asked myself those questions and I've got an answer. I mean, even go back to the, the carbon monocoque, the first one, in the back of my head was, um, you know, it was so new. I had nothing to base it on, nothing. No one had done anything like it. Um, what do I do if we've got a problem, if it's fundamentally a problem? Because at the time when it became public that we, we, I was doing this all-carbon monocoque, there were people in the pit lane, people quite high-profile people, designers, technical people, who were saying, oh, you know, it'll be a disaster. If it hits something, it'll explode in a cloud of black well, dust. Well, I think Gordon blah, blah, blah. Murray is quoted in the book he's, saying he's it, would, one it would of them dissolve into a cloud yeah, of black absolutely. dust. Yeah, absolutely. And to be fair, Gordon had already used one or two 
carbon fibre panels on his aluminium monocoques. He'd kind of integrated them, mm. just just simple flat panels that he'd, he'd uh, glued and riveted in place. Um, and Graham, Graham Hill had... had well, Graham Hill's embassy... Quite disastrously with it. I very think. disastrously. Mm. I mean, that that's, you know, a lot. there's there's a lot of issues like that. I mean, they they had... Um, whoever was designing for Graham... Graham had this embassy team that he'd set up himself and they were building their own car and in the rear... I think it was the rear wing mounting end plate or something and they'd started mm. using strips of... Uh, I, sub, I guess, unidirectional carbon fibre to strengthen these wing plates. I don't know what they did exactly. I have no idea how it was made, but I believe one of them broke and caused a you know a bad accident. Mm. Um, so there was that kind of thing. It's the same with when I went to titanium for all the susp- uh, uprights and so on on the car. The uprights are part of the suspension that holds all the wheel and the, and the, and the wheel hub and brake disc and everything. Um, I went to uh, uh, titanium for that. Now, Lotus had, a few years before that, had already made suspension suspension arms and so on from titanium fabrication. Titanium fabrication being using thin-gauge titanium sheet, crafted and folded... um, by the um, skilled um, uh, fabricators. And then it has to be welded, and it's the welding that is the problem because you cannot let the titanium weld oxidise. You must remove all oxygen from where you're welding. And I don't think... And Lotus were trying to weld it using a, like a, a, a hood on their welding torch to flood the area that they were welding with with a like an argon and inert gas um, in order to keep the world clean but it wasn't good enough and so a lot of that suspension all started cracking and so on um, I'm not I can't remember exactly but I believe there was a um, um, clay Regazzoni's accident which was was that in the shadow I believe I can't remember now but Clay Regs only had a very bad accident. Well, put him in a wheelchair for the mm. rest of his life. Mm. And I think that was a, somebody had made a titanium pedal, brake pedal or something, which failed. I believe that's true. Uh, so, you know, there were all these things in the background. And then me turning around one day and saying, right, we're going from 4130 heat-treated steel. We're going to go to titanium because I wanted to save the weight. Um and so everybody's first reaction, everybody's goes, oh, my God, you know, Lotus did that and it all cracked and, you know, da, 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 well, da. I mean, it's an interesting thing because, uh, I mean, coming back to carbon fibre briefly, the book kicks off uh, in very dramatic fashion mm. in Monza yes. in 1981 yes. uh, with John Watson mm. at the wheel yeah. having this you know, very dramatic crash. Yeah. And lo and behold, he gets out and he's fine. Yeah. And he put that down. Very much to your carbon fiber right. chassis. That was the that was um, a turning point, really, in the carbon fiber model. This is the first season where this is 1981, the first season we're racing this all carbon monocoque, and there are still lots of people in the pit lane, all you know, umming and ahhing about it. John had this major accident at at Monza, and he admits it's his fault. He ran over the curb and lost it um quite at quite high speed i i, I can't remember it's probably a 
40, 150 mile an hour corner, something like that. And um, and went across the track, clouted the barrier. It snapped the engine off the back of the monocoque and, and, and the gearbox broke in half and there was like a flash oil fire from the gearbox. And it was really terrible looking on TV. And John stepped out and, and the monocoque itself was perfectly intact. All the driver's area and everything else was perfectly intact. The engine had been ripped off the back of the monocoque without really damaging anything on the monocoque. And that accident, basically everybody turned around and looked at, the, looked at each other and said, well, I guess the carbon monocoque's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's pretty safe. Yeah. Um, and that really was a fundamental turning point. Um, because, I mean, as you've alluded to, you were very much going against the consensus oh, from absolutely. the media, from the paddock. Yeah. Um, I mean, that obviously didn't bother you. You complete... Well, uh, I think that's another issue, which is interesting, because if you want to do something different, you know, if you're going down a different route... Uh, you have to be completely committed and you have to you have to ask yourself the questions first what if this what if that and you have to have an answer in your head uh, and you but from there on you are going to find lots and lots of naysayers and you've got to be prepared to either ignore them completely or confront them. And the same thing happened with the paddle shift gearbox. Mm. Mm. Um, Which is what, 87 for Ferrari, uh, right? Yeah, that, well, yeah, 80, 80, 8, 87, 88, 89. 89 was the first year we right. raced it at Ferrari. But that was the same deal. I mean, I had to be absolutely committed to doing it that way. Uh, and the same with the carbon monocot. I had to be completely committed and I had to... Because if I'm not committed, the drivers aren't going to get in the car. I mean, I mean the thing you've got to when you're dealing with uh, with, a, with with racing cars and racing drivers is that you have to convince them that they are stepping into something which is number one quick, fast, potentially the fastest car on the track. Number two, it's well built and isn't going to fail. Mm. And, mm. and, you know, they, so they need to believe in that. Well, there was an interesting quote, I thought, uh, towards the back end of the book and, and towards the kind of the tail end of your F1 career where you, you I think it was for Arrows, you were talking to Damon Hill mm -hmm. and he, he's quoting the book as saying, the first thing you said to him is, I'll make the car safe, which I thought was quite a fascinating yeah, thing to, um, to say to a, a racing driver. <laughs> I, I guess Nick talked to Damon. I, I don't remember that. Um, <laughs> I do remember... Uh, I suppose it depends on the driver. It depends at what point he is in his career. Um, because I do know that some drivers, um, if you gave them a list and said, what do you want at the top of the list? Do you want it to be super quick, but, uh, you know, a little bit fragile? Um, do you want it to be sort of comfortably quick and you know, reasonably <laughs> And it, do you want it to be safe and then quick? They go straight to the top of the list. Yeah. I want it quick. I don't care. <laughs> there are a lot, I guess, these days, of course, it, the whole scene has changed. You know, you've got so many regulations about safety, about uh, testing the chassis and so on and so on that uh, it, it doesn't even need to be said now. But um, in, in going back, you know... Uh, 
there was a lot of stuff done that was, uh, shall we say, quite uh, rule of thumb. Well, it's it's an interesting one because I mean I'm keen to talk a bit more in detail about carbon fibre, but just before we get into that, um, one of the th- threads that runs through the book, one of the other threads that runs through the book is is well, frankly, is death. I mean, there, there's an awful lot mm-hmm. of, of dying mm-hmm. going on. I mean, there's an utterly horrendous story of uh, Helmuth Koenig, the uh, <clears throat> uh, German driver, yeah. I think, who was decapitated yeah. and. and, and yeah. You know, there's, this, there's yeah. an image of his head bouncing around the yeah. track with the I cars mean, continuing to race. Horrendous. Um, uh, that was in the US, in US Grand yeah. Prix 74, I believe. Yeah. Um, and it seemed to me there are two uh, deaths, accidents that affected you mm. particularly, mm. John, if you don't mind yeah, talking no, about this. Sure. Which, uh, Joe Bonnier, who died. Joe at, Bonnier, yes. At, that at, that um, was when I was at Lola's way back in the yeah, 70s. 72, yeah. I think, at yeah, uh, Le Mans. I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, working at Lola's, uh, where I started in, in racing, and that was 68, I think it was when I first started there. Um, yeah, I, we used to, just to explain, Lola's were a, a racing car company who built racing cars to sell. So it was an interesting, I mean, going back, talking about design, uh, working for Lola, you, you had a slightly different list of parameters and cost of components was fairly near the top of that list of parameters. I mean, you had to make it quick and, you know, easy to build and and uh, easy to assemble and all the rest of it because these cars were had to be sold for a profit. Um, but uh, whereas in Formula One, um, that list changes, cost goes quite a long way down the list, mm. you know, and, mm. and performance and so on is right at the top. So there's a kind of a different uh, design parameters. But, um, yeah, no, I do remember we, in those days we worked, I mean, how many of us were there in the drawing office then? I think three, four people maybe. And with Eric Broadley, the boss, who who Eric was the sort of chief de- designer in as, in as much as he would define what he wanted and then come out to the drawing office and give it to one of us to to, to do uh i got heavily involved in the what were the two liter and three liter sports cars and um joe's uh, and in those days we didn't have we we didn't really know that much about aerodynamics to be frank we didn't have the facilities of proper wind tunnels, rolling roads. Uh, we just didn't have it. It wasn't there. It hadn't been done then. So a lot of that was um, done by, you know, again, your your own thoughts, your own eye. And um, basically Joe's three-litre at, at uh, Le Mans took off and, and um, ended up in the trees, some sort of 20 just feet flew. up in the trees, yeah. just flew, yeah. Um, and that brought home to me what we were really dealing with. I mean, you kind of, you you know, you, you're doing what you've always wanted to do. I want to work for a racing car company. I want to, des- you know, I know I'm not a driver. I want to design racing cars. Fantastic. We got the chance. Eric gave us the chance. But you're plowing on and it's great. And, you know, you go to a circuit, you go testing with somebody and, oh, it's fantastic. I mean, you know, this is, this is it. Um, and then one day, I wasn't there, but I mean, you know, the news comes back. Joe's been killed uh, at Le Mans, and mm. you just, it just, you just go, oh, what? You know, I'm involved in that. You know, I've drawn bits on that car, um, 
and that really brings it home to you. And that that's the first one that, that was brought home to me. Although I, I wasn't that close to it, but um, you know, I was involved. Yeah, and I mean, the other kind of uh, death that that seems to have a, had a profound effect. I mean, not just on you, but on the whole sport, I guess. Was I mean, it's over twenty years later that mm. uh, horrendous weekend at, mm. um, at Imola, Imola. Yeah. Um, where Roland Ratzenberger died yeah. um, in testing or yes. practice, yes. and then obviously um, Ayrton Senna yes. uh, died. Yes. And, and what kind of effect did, did that have? On oh, you? that that that, that the, the whole paddock just stopped. Basically, it's like uh, I hate to say it. Roland Ratzenberger was killed. That was bad enough. That was terrible. But Roland Ratzenberger was, you know, he he was there in a car which wasn't going to win. I mean, that was just the basic, you know, Roland Ratzenberger was kind of, he was lucky to get into Formula One. He, he, he got in, he was driving a, you know, as you do when you start, not, let's put it this way, very much not a front-running car. So when he died, it was very bad, <coughs> bad news. But when Ayrton was died, uh, was killed, that was just like it just stopped the world in racing. I mean, it really—he was such a name and such a talent. And when if he can be killed, then you know we've got to do something because he's too good. You know, he's just—you kind of you have to say. It wasn't his fault, right? It couldn't be. He was too good. And so it, it caused huge, huge, huge waves. And in fact, it was the only time I can remember in Formula One where we literally changed the rules from one race to the next. Right. We just, we just, you know, the, the, the fuses were... Because it was all about downforce. It was all about running the car close to the ground and, and getting as much as we could from the underside of the car. We were limited then because the cars had, been made to have flat bottoms and you know running them near the ground was a way of getting downforce back from the from the underbodies that we were running in the in the 80 early 80s so that was and running them low gave all sorts of problems um tire pressures for one i mean you know if, if you ended up um for whatever reason the cars were running slowly on a lap or two tire pressures would go down and when they started racing again, you you might you might see the, you know, the cars start hitting the ground because the, you've lost pressure in the tyres, and the cars running lower. I mean, they were so critical mm. on that ride height, but we've never really been told what the true reason is why Ayrton's car went off the track. Um, there are lots of theories: broken steering columns, which had been let's say, modified in the morning, you know, and, and so on. Um, but who knows? I don't know. I'm not speculating on yeah. what caused it. I just know that after that, we had to change things. We changed the aerodynamics. We cut diffusers. We put holes in the airbox to try and reduce the engine power a little bit at high speed. To just whatever could be done literally in a week was done. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so that's the reaction and then from then on, the whole safety aspect in Formula One changed from the moment Senna was killed and new regulations were looked at for, you know, implementation as soon as possible. Just, just the whole focus of safety in Formula One changed. 
Can we talk about carbon fibre? Mm. Which, uh, I mean, this podcast is ostensibly about about materials. Yes. And, and this is the material with which you're kind of really linked. Yeah. Um, uh, it was unearthed in 1958 by Roger Bacon at the Union Carbide Corporation. Yeah. Uh, was refined by a team of Brits, I believe, a yes. British aircraft establishment, Bill yes. Watt, Bill Johnson and Leslie yeah. Phillips in yeah. 1963. That was at Farnborough, yeah. Yeah, in Farnborough. Um, what are its properties, John? Well... Fundamentally, its properties are that it's strong, it's stiff, and it's very light. And um, as a designer, most times that's what you're looking for, most times. But there are two distinct types, I believe I'm right in saying, CF cloth and UD tape? Well, yes. I mean, it's fundamentally it's the same carbon. Um, it's just that carbon is made in, um, in very fine, um, long strands these strands are bundled together into what they call toes um and just you know you might a toe might have five thousand strands of carbon in it for example but a toe is still only uh you know like if you look at a, a standard toe it's probably i don't know a millimeter or something in diameter that kind of size you know so you can imagine how fine these these fibers are um, with unidirectional, that, and that, to be honest, that was the first carbon that came about. And the first monocoque I did was nearly all unidirectional, which is partly why it was not, it didn't have three-dimensional shapes. It was all effectively flat facets around the monocoque um, because it was unidirectional. And with unidirectional, the, the, the fibres are... Um, are all laid in line the carbon fibers are all laid in line and then they are impregnated with um, a resin uh, they are laid in a resin matrix and usually that resin is an epoxy resin which is cured under temperature and pressure so you've then got these long fibers contained in this resin um, and that's that's that is your effectively your your cured carbon fiber uh, matrix if you like um, then they were able to weave it into a cloth so you've now taken these long toes and you're weaving it into a cloth literally uh, like you would you know any any sort of fairly coarse cloth that you can imagine that's what they're doing with the carbon fiber mm. so you've got unidirectional and you've got cloth and how is it different to work with them? I mean, chassis would have been made by aluminium before that. Yeah. So, so working with them was, how different was it? Well, it was a very different design process um, because when you're dealing with aluminium, you, you, you're buying aluminium. Let's talk about a monocoque, which is effectively aluminium sheet folded, glued and riveted together. Um, you buy that sheet from suppliers in certain thicknesses. And those thicknesses are very carefully controlled, you know, down to thousandths of an inch. Um, <clears throat> so when you design, you you pretty much know uh, where uh, what f f where a face is, if you like. How can I explain this? Um, you're going to attach something to this monocoque. Let's say you're going to attach a, a suspension pickup point. Um, I know when I draw that, I know where that face is on the monocoque and I know if I glue and rivet my wishbone pickup to it I know where it's going to be um, I can do the same on the inside 
I can I can design something on the inside face too because I know where that's going to be as well. When you're dealing with carbon fiber, you have to mold it. So you have to make a mold which you lay lay this uncured carbon fiber on, and that could be unidirectional, it could be cloth. But you lay it on there in a number of layers to build up the thickness you want for the whatever purpose it's doing. You know, you have to work out the thicknesses to carry the loads that you want to carry in that particular area. Um, and then it is covered with a, effectively, in very simple terms, it's covered with a plastic bag. You draw a vacuum in that bag and then you put it in an autoclave and you apply pressure to it. So you you consolidate. So an autoclave is an oven. Is, is effectively a big oven pressure. with pressure inside. Yeah. So you you heat up this resin, which is kind of sticky in its natural form. You you put this bag, you pull a pressure on the on the carbon onto the mold tool. You heat it up. After a certain heat cycle, the, the resin, as I say, mostly epoxy resin, sets into a solid form. You have then what you've then got is carbon fiber which on one side only is the shape and smoothness of the mold tool the other side is uh, where you had your what we call a vacuum bag which is the plastic sheet i was talking about with various bleed things underneath it you've effectively got an unmolded side so now i've got something which i i know where the molded side is going to be but i don't know where the unmolded side is going to be and i, I i'm talking within you know within a fractions of a millimetre, mm. let's say, or in many cases, if it's a big, thick layup of carbon, within millimetres. Um, so you have to kind of design with that parameter. The first monocoque I did was moulded on the inside. I made this huge aluminium mould tool in sections. We, we wrapped the tape, unidirectional tape, around this tool added the honeycomb sandwich in there, laid more composite, uh, carbon composite tape over the honeycomb and then cured the whole thing on the mold tool. So now I've got, I have to say, when the first monocoque arrived after having been laid up and cured. It was made in the States, right? It was made Hercules. at Hercules. Yeah, they made the first ones. And when the first one arrived, the outside of it was really quite, was not not the prettiest sight. I mean, it was wrinkly, quite wrinkly. It was a bit wrinkly. <laughs> it was a bit, you know, it was a bit uneven and so on. And you think, oh my God, you know, that, <laughs> how am I going to fix anything to that? But I designed all my, comp all my fixings, like suspension fixings and so on, on the inside face, which was the molded face. So that, that process of molded, unmolded, is very different to designing with metal. Mm. Um, and then you've got the aspect of load direction because uh, if you take, a, for example, if you take a strip of unidirectional carbon fibre that's been cured, so you've now got this stiff, think of it, I don't know, think of a, think of a, of a, of a, of a ruler, you know, say... 30 centimetres long, two inches wide. This is all unidirectional fibres. It's cured. It's stiff. I pick it up. I try and bend it the, the natural way you would pick up the ends of a ruler and bend it, and it's really stiff, and it's really light. I now try and bend it 
in the other direction across the ruler. So I'm, I'm now holding the sides of this ruler and bending it and it'll go snap. Right. Because all that's Jeez. holding it together in mm. that direction is the glue, the, the, the epoxy. Mm. So when you're designing something, you've got to look at all the load paths. You've got to know what kind of loads are going in, what the load path is, which means that you end up laying all these, putting all these layers of unidirectional at different angles, all taking a piece of a load that's going in. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a complicated mm. process. Um, I just remember the first monocoque I, I was, um, I mean, I, I, I had to kind of educate myself or at least um, I, I was fortunate to have a guy called Arthur Webb who worked for British Aerospace and was really... Who seemed to be working for you in his spare time, is that, yeah, is that true? Yeah, that's how it started, yeah. yeah he, was, he, was, um, he was interested and he was, he was been right in at the beginning of carbon composite. Well, it's an interesting thing because, I mean, even after you revolutionised the materials use, teams, mm. according to the book, were still using it incorrectly. I mean, one mm. of the more shocking moments... Mm was the death of Gilles Villeneuve yeah. uh, in a crash in 82. Yeah. Mm. And there's an implication uh, in the book that Ferrari were not using carbon fibre correctly. Well, I, yeah, I don't know what's said in the book. I mean, there was certainly an element, in my opinion, there was an element of incorrect design in that car because from, from what we're told and what I understood at the time was that Gilles was in his racing seat, which was strapped to a part of the monocoque behind him what we would call the seat back and it literally pulled the seat back completely out of the monocoque with Jill still strapped to it still strapped to his seat and just the impact on the car was so big it just took his weight and tore all that that seat back out of the car that's as I understand it to me that's oh, that's that's an error in design um I can't say how they uh, manufactured the carbon uh, monocoques, but I do know that when we started, uh, when I, for example, when I started at Ferrari in 86, 87, and we created our own facility just outside Guildford where we made, we made the monocoques, I did not want Ferrari to make the monocoques mm. because one thing about carbon composites, you have to know that all the processes are being followed to the, you know, exact letter um, because y you, have, you have to keep it clean. You have, I mean, so when we created this facility for Ferrari in 86, 87, we had a, what we call a clean room, which was um, where all the atmosphere is controlled. It's totally dust-free. Everybody that worked in there wears overalls, gloves, you know, uh, hats, overshoes and so on. I mean, it, it really was done to aerospace standards. And, uh, you know, I know that at that time people were using carbon a bit like they use fiberglass. You know, it, it was all, some of it was even wet layup and they would get the dry carbon cloth and just, you know, impregnate it with a brush. Um, maybe, you know, maybe they were a bit better than that. But there was the, the, the idea of cleanliness, the idea of um, 
when you, I mean, the glue joints are the big thing as well. You know, if you don't do the glue joints correctly with the correct cleaning, the correct preparation, it, you, you just, you know, forget it. It's just not going to work. So that whole level of expertise was definitely not there in 86, 87. Now, the Villeneuve accident you're talking about is early 80s, mm. I believe. Mm. So at what level they were then, I hate to think. Um, but I suspect, I suspect carbon fibre was being used not a lot different to fibreglass, mm. you know, in that kind of method, methodology. I mean, you're very intriguing because as you've alluded to uh, before, you, you don't seem to be that fussed by the races themselves or, or <laughs> going to the race. It doesn't seem to be about the glamour. I yeah. mean, you've obviously made some money, but but I, yeah. I don't sense that money is your your motivating factor. So so what what is the appeal or was the appeal? Well, winning is win- I mean, winning is good. Winning is nice. I mean, I, I suppose my I, when I first got in Formula One, I moved from Lola's to what was then called Team McLaren. And um, my first job there was to come in and, and work on the M23 um, car. Uh, but I wasn't involved at the circuit. Um, I was in the drawing office. I was down in the workshop in the drawing office. That, that, that was it. Um, it... You know, as I said before, the technical aspect was really what fascinated me. But of course, racing depends on sponsorship. Sponsorship comes if you win. So winning is essential to be able to make things. <laughs> so as I went through, I went I went to McLaren and then I moved to California where um, I worked for Vels Pinelli Jones team Um still making aluminium cars, aluminium monocoque cars. And then I came back to do the Chaparral, another aluminium monocoque car, but a ground effect car that was became very successful and effectively set the trend at Indianapolis for what we call ground effect cars. Mm. Can, can we very quickly just, just mm. explain what ground effect yes. is? Ground effect is when the underside of the car has a shape to it. And as the car moves through the air over the road, the air underneath the car is a low pressure is created under the car by the shape of that underside of the car. That low pressure acts over a, a big area and produces huge downforce on the car. Downforce means more grip from the tires means you go around the corners a lot faster. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, that was the that was the step there, and then I went having done the chaparral and let's say within the business getting a name for myself because the chaparral was totally new ground the up two K. every the two k mm. everything new. Um, I then met um, Ron Dennis, who I talked to, and he he wanted to do Formula One. And he's he running a, pro- a company called, well, a team called Project Four. Project, at the time. Project Four at the time. Project Four were running Formula Two cars, Formula Three cars, and they were building the BMW Pro Car um, as a kind of a subcontract BMW uh, deal, if you like. But Formula Two and Formula Three cars they were running were um, were customer, what we call customer cars. They, I think, they were March. They bought bought these cars from March, who were another 
companies like Lola Cars making mm. cars for sale. Um, so I talked to Ron and he said, okay, he said, you've got a year to design this car uh, while I go out and do the deals to, you know, to, to, so that we can go from there to create the team, if you like. And I thought, wow, you know, I've got this time, which you don't often get in racing, uh, to do something. I've just done the chaparral. I need to do something. I need to take another step. People are kind of looking at me now thinking, oh, he's just done that chaparral, which was all a whole new direction. What's he going to do now? At least that was the way I saw mm. it. Probably most people didn't even know who the hell I was. But um, uh, I thought, no, I've got to use this time. I've got to make a step. And in those days, we were under uh, uh, ground effect. The underside of the car was super important. The more of the underside of the car you could make into what I call a ground effect shape, the better you were, the better aerodynamics you were going to get from your car. So I thought to myself, I need, I need a very narrow monocoque. Now, a, a, a narrow monocoque means I'm going to lose rigidity. I'm going to lose torsional rigidity, which is important in the handling of the car. And so I then investigate. I got invited to go to British Aerospace at Weybridge where they were, make, they were doing carbon fibre. They were doing the big engine cowling for the RB211 engine in, in carbon. So I went there and, and had a look at it and I then looked at the properties of it and thought, well, I've got, this, is what, this has to be the right material. It's light, it's strong, it's stiff, and I can make it what shape I want <laughs> within reason. Mm. And, you know, that that's, has to be... But it's it's step change, isn't it? That seems to yeah. that seems to interest you. It's not refining yes. an existing car. Yeah, particularly. correct. I mean, I'd just come from um, uh, well, I, I strangely enough, having done the step change at Project Four, which we then joined forces with Team McLaren, became McLaren International. Having done the carbon monocoque, in fact, at McLaren, I then did. Uh, I did each year for about, well, to be honest, for the first three years, it was more or less a revision on the same monocoque. Uh, and then the further three years, it was a, a slight change to the monocoque, but the same principles. So almost for six years, the basic way the monocoque was built and so on in carbon, I retained. So I kind of I kind of did the step change. Then I did the evolution mm. bit. And after about six years, I guess I was getting fed up. <laughs> you know, this is getting quite boring. Not only that, but we were winning. <laughs> I, know. I know. Well, it's a fascinating yeah. thing because um, you, you had this season where you, I mean, yeah. you trounced everybody. I, I think yeah. you got 147 points in yes. Ferrari yeah. and half, and Ferrari yeah, got 57, right. came second. Yeah. And it seems to me that you then, yeah. you kind of went into what, what felt like a, almost like a bit of a depression about it. Well, you, you, you're not far off. It wasn't depression. It was a case of having... You're talking about the 1984 season, which was super successful. And then I've got... I, by the middle of the season, you know you've won the championship. Pretty, pretty much won both. You won the drivers and the constructors. So what am I going to do for next year? I've now got to be thinking about 1985 as, as the chief designer, technical director. 
So I've got to think, what am I going to do about that? And then they bring in this rule change uh, or, or a number of rule changes to all designed to hurt the aerodynamics because we were making, we were definitely ahead on aerodynamic development to people like Ferrari um, and Ferrari with all their political clout got things changed. They were constantly trying to knock back the aero side because they knew that lots of the British teams were much better at that side than they mm. were. And they were really based on engines. They were really an engine company. Enzo Ferrari was fundamentally an engine. You know, his interest was in the engine. Um, but then he knew after that period, sort of the 80s, that he had to up their game. Um, so I'd been, what, six years or so at McLaren International working with Ron and, and then I got these calls from Ferrari mm. and and um, and it's kind of, you think, yeah, if you're in racing, if you're in Formula One, you really need to work for Ferrari at least once. Well, you, you, you did more than once. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I did it twice. What, I, what I'm keen to do is, is we'll, we'll maybe get on to Ferrari, but I'm yeah. very keen to just unpick a little bit yeah. about your your background, if, if I may. Because yeah. you were born in 1946 yes. in Edgware. Your parents weren't involved in racing, but they were no. engineers. Yes, correct. Because uh, I think they worked for the Glacier Metal Company. Yeah, well, my mother um, uh, worked there during the war. My father worked there for, I don't know, 25 years or something, mm. so... Your, your mother, Rose Ellen, was in charge of the grinding. I know. So, so yeah. I'm t I, I, I understand. She ran the grinding shop there during, the, during that period, I suppose, during the wartime when lots of women did these things um, with about, I don't know, a number of blokes underneath her. So she was quite a tough character. <laughs> yeah, obviously. <laughs> and you even had a forge in your house. Oh, well, we did anything, basically, anything we needed to do. I mean, that, that, that's, I suppose, my interest in cars came about when I was a, a youngster, very young. Um, but then it, it transpired. And by the time I got to sort of 16, 17, um, I was into road cars, not just into road cars. I was making things on road cars and, and all sorts of various things that we were doing. So we were making lots of stuff at home. I taught myself to weld, gas weld, um, spraying and all that kind of thing. Did it all at home, you know, yeah. just made... I mean, you wanted to just go spraying. We made ourselves a compressor and, you know, not a compressor. We got a compressor, got a tank, got a spray gun, put it all together, you know. It's the same with, with the forge. I mean, we had a project where we needed to come up with some um, heavy metal for putting a tow bar on one of our cars Uh and in those days, you know, you didn't go down the road and just buy a tow bar. You had to kind of come up with how you're going to fix this thing on the car. So you make it. What was it about cars that appealed? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, gosh, I don't know because my uh, my father, I, I just remember the first, I mean, I remember going back to his Morris 10. I think we were changing. He had to put a new clutch in it and I was about nine or ten. And I got involved. I, I was watching him, I suppose, more than anything, but watching him do this job. And um, I suppose it. We were always hands on. Whatever, you know, there were lots of things we did that we were hands on. Always making something. I mean, I was a model maker when I was a kid. You know, aeroplanes and all sorts. And that hands on then got transferred to 
doing things with cars and then having done things with cars, road cars for myself and so on, I then you get to a point, well, you know, what can I do? Can I work in this business? And then you start buying what was then a black and white auto sport. <laughs> um, and, you know, you start reading the magazines and you and, and, and slowly you, you, you're, you're dragging in all this information about racing. And then one day you think, maybe I ought to get into mm. racing, you know. I mean, I was intrigued you even built a speedboat at your... Yes, that's, that's right. If it was I 15 then, I think, and I built this plywood, a marine ply and, you know, proper speedboat with with a steering wheel and seats and everything. Um, my parents had a... Uh, out, we we had a a boat on the Thames with an, a large outboard motor on it, a forty horsepower. Well, last for those days, a forty horsepower Evin route. And I thought, oh, if I build a speedboat, I can clamp that on the back, and it'd be it might be good fun. It was. Um, so yeah, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so you know, built that. Mm. Uh, yeah, just always making stuff. I mean, I was I was intrigued. Uh, you didn't get into grammar school. Mm. And there's a quote where you describe yourself as an uneducated blacksmith with oily hands. I think that's a bit stretching it. But, I mean, I did go to college. I went to tech college. Yeah, and in which, Watford. Yes, eventually, yes. I mean, I started off at Acton Tech for two years full-time and then did a sandwich course at Watford Tech. And that was a very good, uh, I think it was a very good education because it, it was, it, we did all sorts of, covered all sorts of areas in the mechanical engineering side, structures and uh, uh, all sorts of stuff. Very useful. I mean, lots of the formula that we did, we derived from first principles. So I can still remember lots of those formulas. I can still use them. Um, and the thing was that, you know, it was a, it was a very... Um, because we weren't using computers, we were using slide rules. You you had to understand the loads. You had to imagine the loads in a structure. Um, and I think that helped me a lot later on because I, I know that, you know, when even when I was employing 20 people in the drawing office and I got three or four guys on, on CAD with FE and all the rest of it, Quite often, I could go and look at it, and I think to myself, "Nah, I don't see that load like that." You know, just just have another look at that, see where you what see what parameters you're putting into your program, because I don't think that's correct. And while they were using CAD, you were still working with a pencil. Or... Oh yeah, still on the drawing yeah. board, designing yeah. stuff. Yeah, but I mean, at the same time, also calculating stuff, doing ba you know, doing calculations, uh, not to the not to the level of a finite element program, but doing calculations enough that would tell me what size, what shape, you know, would most times put me uh, right in the money. Let's put it that way. Because there's a really interesting relationship, I think, um, uh, in your career, it seems to me, where there's a relationship between gut instinct or maybe what craftspeople call tacit knowledge mm. and data. Mm. what's the relationship between... Because it seems to you have a sense of what materials will do and what they can withstand. 
Yeah, well, I think that's where that's coming from the days when I was building lots of stuff and not just, I mean, they went through a period, you know, where I could use machines and that kind of thing. Um, and when you get down and, and handle all of this stuff, you, you, you begin to understand what you need to do a job, you know, what size, what shape and so on. One of the things, even many years later, when, when I got our own design offices and so on, certainly after I took over the facility that we built for Ferrari and I took it over and, and renamed it B3 Technologies, I used to, when we had that facility, we had our own composite shop, we had our own machine shop, test shop, uh, design office and so on. So it was a pretty much all-encompassing little unit, say little unit, it was about 40 people. If I got a new designer in the drawing office or a young guy in, I tried to put them in the composite section for a couple of weeks, actually making stuff in composites, actually laying up carbon fibre in moulds, bagging it, curing it, so that they could understand what you can do with it because the thing you can't do with carbon is sit down draw a piece of in metal which is let's say a lump of metal and i'm going to machine this and i'm going to machine that and i'm going to leave a bit sticking up there drill a hole in it bolt something to it i can't do that with composites it doesn't work if you try and do that with composites you're either going to have a failure or you're going to end up with something which has got 10 times more composites in it than it should have. So sending them to get that hands-on experience, I felt, was really essential. And I know lots of them have said to me, I learned a lot when I did that bit of time in the composites. And I see stuff now even uh, that people are designing in composites, and I think to myself, you've just sat at a computer, you've sat at a CAD terminal, taken a block you know, chewed it out and made it composite. Mm. And I can tell that it's not been thought about as a composite component. There's a lovely quote from Nick in the book, where, which says, John's cars are not only expressions of his deep understanding of mechanics and his instincts for aerodynamics. They're expressions of a personality trait. <laughs> <laughs> so my question is, uh, what does that personality, how does that personality trait express itself? <laughs> uh, I, I'm... I am described by a number of people, including people in my family, as a perfectionist, um, sometimes in a derogatory tone. Um, I, I am known as having an eye for detail. Um, even my, build, my builder, who has worked on projects for me for 35 years, you know, he will, I know when he, if I use him now, I use him now kind of in a, in almost an advisory capacity. He's nearly retired. And um, he, when he employs somebody to do a job, he says to them, I've got to tell you, you know, this guy has, will pick up the detail like no one you've ever seen. So that's me. That's the way I am. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that I try and that I hope comes through in the design, certainly in the racing cars, um, because one of the things that 
one of the other things I started, and I'm going back now to, well, going back to the chaparral, but that, that only involved myself, one other guy and a part-time guy in the drawing office. That We drew the whole thing between us. After that, starting at McLaren, starting at joining forces with Team McLaren and going in there was when I actually created a different environment in a Formula One team. I laid down the rules technically and the rules were you don't make anything without a drawing and every drawing's got to come from the drawing office. Up to that time, lots of little bits and pieces on the cars would have been made by the mechanics. Wow. Even to the point where, you know, I don't know, you take an oil cooler bracket on one car, the mechanics have made it on that car, the mechanics looking after that car have made that bracket. Uh, the mechanics on the next car have made their own bracket for that oil cooler. Those two are not interchangeable. Um, that's where it was at. I came along and laid down these rules, which upset quite a lot of mechanics because lots of the mechanics, especially being Kiwis, were very much... This was at McLaren. This was at yep. the, yep. the first time at McLaren. Yep. We're talking 1980, 81. Yeah. You know, they would have been used to just going down the bottom of the garden and making something, you know, and that was that was how they operated. So I came along with this system and that really put the cat on my feet. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about culture change because mm. we left your, your kind of career arc, as it were, um, in about 1986 when you joined... Ferrari, mm, and yeah. you cut this remarkable deal <clears throat> where mm. you didn't go to Italy to no. to, to work there mm. at the, the home of, of the most famous mark in in motorsport and yeah. motoring. Uh, you stayed in Guildford, correct? How how on earth did you swing that? Well, uh, they were phoning. I was at McLaren working away at Team McLaren, um, and uh, not Team McLaren working away at McLaren International as it was then. Um, and uh, they started contacting me and they started offering me, you know, pretty generous salaries, et cetera, et cetera. And I just said, look, it's fine. Thank you very much. But, you know, I am not going to work in Italy. I had a young family. I had uh, quite a nice house um, in just outside uh, Woking. And, uh, you know, I wasn't going to uproot that lot and go to Italy. So I kept saying, no, I'm sorry, you know, I'm not not going to Italy, not going to Italy. And then they came they came back and they said, what about if you could open an office in UK? Now, I think what was in their mind was an office with like three or four drawing boards or something, you know, and, <laughs> and just me sitting there penciling all this. And I said, well, that's fine. I said, but look, I, you can't design and use, you cannot bring in new things without the ability, without contact direct contact with the manufacturing side so i'm going to have to create a facility which gives me metal fabrication it gives me carbon composite capability it gives me design capability and uh, you know and that, so, so in effect that's how how it went and they came back and said oh okay then you know <laughs> So then I started to pull in some of the people that had worked for me that I knew, etc. Um, and uh, I pulled in a guy, a German guy, Peter Reinhardt, who um, went out there, found us a, a brand new high-tech building that hadn't been finished, so we could create the, the the clean rooms, we could install a big autoclave, 
uh, install a machine shop. You know, we could get it the way we wanted it. Um, and that's what happened. And so they, they were the ones. I, I didn't say to them, well, I'm only going to do it. I just kept, I kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm not going to Italy. Yeah. You know, I don't want to go and live in Italy. And, uh, and I would have stayed where I was. Um, I mean, it's during this period you came up with the semi-automatic gearbox, yeah. which, which we, yeah. we've kind yeah. of talked about. But it seems to me, as your story goes on throughout Formula One, that, that things, I don't know, they seem to get harder and harder, more political, possibly. Well, I, <laughs> that, I'm afraid, is what happens when, A, when you join a team like Ferrari. The politics there are Because they built a secret car behind your... Well, they, your they started, bank, they built a, a wind tunnel model, let's put it that way. Right. Never right. got as far as a car, but okay. it was a wind tunnel model. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the, the, the whole Ferrari atmosphere is quite political, which was another reason why staying in the UK was at least some respite from it, not completely, because you've still got the Italian press and all sorts going on. Um, so it, it, it was one of those situations where as soon as they said, we'll have your own facility in UK it kind of opened up another option for me. And I'm, I'm now thinking, well, they've got their own engine department. I was theoretically over that engine department as technical director. It wasn't that simple. I mean, the politics of that is something else. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but so, so then, then politics come into the, into the scene. At McLaren, I was pretty much... King Kong in terms of technical side. Ron was looking after all the finance and all the other commercial side, etc. And as he does, doing an excellent job, I was looking after the technical side. And that was it. It was, you know, there was Frank Williams, Patrick Head, Ron Dennis and me. You know, that was kind of the setup. Um, and that all worked, but not easy. I mean, every partnership is has is you know there's always a problem somewhere there's always it's, it's never easy but then along come ferrari and you know there's this ferrari thing there's there's more money there's uh, there's just the ferrari i mean you know the prancing horse is mm. the prancing horse mm. what was enzo like <laughs> enzo i couldn't t I, he spoke italian i didn't speak italian so it all went through and it, another guy called marco piccinini but enzo Basically, Enzo knew that he needed to get the British aerodynamics capability, and he'd been, you know, we just had had three successful years at McLaren with my cars, and you know, he says that's, you know, I've got this is the guy we need because we can't do it all with the engine side. So he brought me in. Um, I think he he was one of those guys who he didn't mind pitting people against each other to see who was going to come out on top. Mm. Um, and uh, I think that's how he viewed it. You know, he thought, well, it's fine. We'll let them build their kind facility over there. See what, yeah, see what comes out of it. And, uh, and you know, this whole thing was going on. I was doing this new, new car in England and... Uh, Pen, penciling it, drawing it in England. I got my some drawing office there. I got all these facilities for making the monocoque because I wasn't going to let them make the monocoque there. I didn't. I didn't have the belief that they could have the standards required to guarantee, 
you know, a, a good composite components. Which is a fascinating indictment of uh, of, of the team at that that stage. Well, I think that wasn't just them. I think that was general. I mean, as yeah, I say, right. we, we came McLaren along. McLaren that far ahead. Well, actually, this was, yeah, I mean, this was after McLaren. This is as I left McLaren, mm. and we're now creating this facility for Ferrari. This is at the end of 86. Um, uh, we were instilling new standards in Formula One then. That's when it came mm. about with the proper clean rooms mm. and all the rest of it. Um, even up to then, I mean, the lots of the monocoques we used at McLaren were built in the States by Hercules, who were a professional, you know, outfit sure, sure. Um, with, with their cardinal composite knowledge. Um, but then we did bring them in-house at McLaren and make them in-house. I mean, you designed some beautiful cars when you are at Ferrari. Uh, the 641 is in the MoMA collection yes, in New York, yeah. for instance. Mm. How important is beauty in Formula One? Well, very important to me. I mean, I, I do very much go by this ethos that if it looks right, it usually is right. Um, and the other thing I try and do, which unfortunately lots of the paint schemes you get in Formula One cars, masks. Um, but I try and have a line that's flowing. I, I don't like lines which just stop. I mean, they have to they have to flow Um you know, and they have to they have to start and somewhere and put it this way, they have to start and go to somewhere with a purpose, if you like. So so it has to flow. Hmm. Um, um and and you know, that that's something I just I just like to see. I like to look at it. I hmm. can't you know, I've seen some cars where you got hideous noses and things that sort of are all bent and uh, horrible. I mean these cars today I really don't like them. They're they're really quite ugly. So after a brief stint at Benetton, you went back to Ferrari yeah. for a second, a second mm. bite of that particular yeah. cherry. Um, you didn't get on with Michael Schumacher. Can we have a little talk about drivers? Prost yes. seems to be a, a, mm. a favourite of yours. Well, yes. I mean, he, in terms of car setup and ability to uh, distinguish, let's say, between a tyre problem and a chassis problem, I don't think anybody was as good as him. Not so keen on De Cesaris. I mean, he's a nice guy, mm. but he, he was he he got thrown in, in my opinion, far too early. He got thrown in because his I don't know what he was, uncle or something, was the boss of Marlborough, Europe. Or, or Philip Morris, I should say, Europe. And Philip Morris was our number one sponsor at the time, big sponsor. And basically he was shoehorned into the second car because of that. And I think he got it. He, he was. I think it didn't do him any favours because uh, he was very young, very inexperienced, and was just you know just driving outside himself half the time. Um, I did I, as a person, you know, I got on all right with him. Fine. It. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, after the second time at Ferrari, you kind of consulted, mm. I guess, is the the best way of putting it, for Arrow and then... Theoretically consulted. Then, I, yeah. I more or less went into Arrow's as technical director. Right. But it was kind of a consultancy because we were... we we I had taken over the facilities from Ferrari that we created for Ferrari, taken them over and renamed them B3 Technologies. We then did a deal with Arrow's where we would use all our facilities there to back up the team in... Uh, in Oxfordshire, um, and I would spend most of my week up in Oxfordshire um, we running the drawing office. We moved the drawing office that we had at, um, at Guildford up to 
um, Lee Field where, where Arrows were. And so I was basing myself there pretty mm. much all week. B3 continuing to make carbon composite stuff, uh, fabrication stuff, machine stuff um, for for the team. So that was the kind of deal. I mean, those those later years seem quite frustrating. I don't mm. know if that's true. You seem to be either fighting ingrained culture or lacking resources to do the job as you wanted to do it. Is that a fair comment? To, yeah, to, it is to some degree. I mean, I mean, fighting ingrained cultures was something I got used to. For example, I walk into Ferrari, Piccinini, the Enzo's right-hand man, um, he says to me one day, he said, what did you do at McLaren for lunch times? You know, what, what, it went at the races, what did you do? And uh, he said, I said, well, the boys would probably get a sandwich and a coffee and they'd sort of 10 minutes, they'd sit down in the garage for 10 minutes and, and then get on with prepping the cars for qualifying or something like that. Ferrari used to lay the tables out, tablecloth, cutlery, quite often a bottle of Lambrusco or something on the table, <laughs> and that was their lunchtime. And that this is between practice and qualifying, you know. And, it, and so Piccinini, who was a smart guy, he said, he said um, do, what do you think then? Do you think we should, um, what, do, you think we should uh, do that here? Do you think we should stop the, the lunchtime? I said, well, quite honestly, Marco, I think that's, you know, I don't know how they get the work done if you operate like that. Leave it to me. He said, leave it to me. So the next thing I know... Barnard stops the wine at lunchtime. Barnard stops, you know, the table, the, the sit-down lunch and so on. It was all me. But in fact, it was Piccinini that went out there and said, Mr. Barnard doesn't want this anymore. Mr. Barnard wants you to stop that. So, you know, that's what you're dealing with. I, I thought, oh, well, if he's going to use my name to get it done, that's fine. But, of course, you get the, I get the, 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 the you the know, blame. the backlash. Mm. I get the backlash from the people that don't want it to change. So I, I'm going through culture changes all the time. I mean, this, this might sound like a, a daft question because you've had this extraordinary career. Um, but do you think you've fulfilled your potential? There are other designers out there who won more championships than you mm, did. Yeah. Do, do you, are there regrets? Do you wish occasionally you'd sat in? I look back on it and I think, well, I, you know, maybe I maybe I pushed the boat too far then. You know, maybe I should have just you know, done a tweak, done a polish to the existing car and carried on. Maybe, maybe I, I, I admit to pushing technically too far, too fast. So more recently, you've been making furniture out of carbon fibre with Terence Well, Woodley yes, yes. And uh, with Established and Sons mm. making it. Mm. Um, how did that come about? That came about because um, in 1995, I was elected into the RDI, the Royal Designers for Industry, um, which is a offshoot of the Royal Society of Arts and they it's it's it covers all design disciplines basically and there's a limited number um, there were a hundred when I joined maximum and I think it's up to 200 now but basically um, it's just it's just a, a recognition by other designers if you like um, other well-known designers um, and um, so I became an RDI in 95. Terence Woodgate, the furniture designer, he became an RDI, or he was, I don't know whether he was an RDI before me or after me, I can't remember. But we met through the RDI. And um, <clears throat> Terence, we started talking and, and Terence had these ideas, you know, for in this particular instance a table. And, um, and I 
sat down and figured out how we could make it. And it's gone on from there, this kind of partnership, anything to do with carbon furniture, carbon composite furniture, we do we do as a partnership. I like it because um, it's... Uh, the time scales are... More, it's presumably the pace is rather different. Well, yeah, the time scales are kind of what you want, really, you know. <laughs> oh, I'll do that next week, you know, which is just... I, I've never operated like that before. Um, and um, and to be honest, the engineering is relatively simple, although, again, cost now, cost factors get to the top of the list now as much as anything. Um, but it, it's, it's good fun, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, we're we're looking at some new things at the moment. Um, we did this table that got quite good reviews, and it's quite, you know, it's a very very thin. Well, table. That, that first table you did is absolutely yeah. beautiful. I, I mean, mean it, it was it was yeah. pretty pretty amazing. Um, uh, and then I remember we 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 upped the size all the way to a six meter, six meter long, one point four wide, which um, Johnny Ive, the Apple designer, has one. Um, and that looks pretty amazing mm. when you see that six meters long. And, and when you look at it from the side, it looks about three millimeters thick. Um, obviously, it's a bit thicker than that in the middle, but you don't notice that when you're standing up looking at it. And that looks pretty impressive when you see, you know, a six meter, three millimeter thick sheet on four legs. Um, but again, again, actually, that that was a that was a that's a good illustration because. I sit down and I do hand calculations on on the composite layup and how we're going to make it, etc. And um, there was a bit of an argument over this six meter table and 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 about the the sag or the droop that happened in the table. So I sat down and worked it out, and uh, I think people were beginning to suspect my calculations. And uh, so I said, all right, we'll get we'll get somebody to do an FE on it, a finite element on this table, which we did. And I worked it out and sat down and worked it out. And they did all this FE and run it through all these computers and everything else. And I think we were, I think I said it was, I forget what it was, it was sort of approximately four millimetres of sag in the middle. And they came up with sort of, 3.99 or something like that you know it was like so close it wasn't even worth talking about and I thought yeah okay that's all right you know, I can still do it <laughs> I can still do the numbers <laughs> so I can hear your grandchildren downstairs and we ought to really let you go um so final question are you designing other things at the moment there was a talk of a fold-up bike I heard uh oh well I did start on the bike um and that was a bit unfortunate because I got to the point where I was sort of ready to do a prototype. Uh, but it, it was one of those things that needs the input of electronics, of carbon composites, uh, and you know, machining and so on. And McLaren have all that. And I, at the time, I spoke to Ron Dennis um, and, and Ron said, he said, I'll build you a prototype then. Yeah, we'll do it here. We'll do a prototype here. And then... They had that terrible year with Honda. Uh, and then the next thing I know, he's gone. So <laughs> I, I didn't get my prototype. That's still on built. the drawing yeah, board. Yeah, it's still there. It's still sort of, but I don't know whether it'll ever happen. But uh, Well, John, thank you so much for your time. I really, pleasure. really appreciate pleasure. it.
The Perfect Car, the biography of John Barnard by Nick Skeens is published by Evero and is available at all good bookshops. There are images from the interviews as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from and go to my Patreon page and make a pledge. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.